Good morning. It is Saturday, September 19th, and you are listening to the second ever episode of Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to Saturday. Ashley, you know what I missed most today, though? What, Michael? Okay, last week, I actually got to see you. We got to record this in person. Now, like all things, all the time, we've both drifted apart again. It's like a country and western song. You're out east. I'm here in the city. But anyway, all right, so you're back out east. Things are good. Yeah. The chickens are okay. And back at ace, things are good. Chickens are okay, except last night, one of them, for some reason, didn't get back in the coop. So at like 8.30 at night, I was wandering around in the woods. I told you, it's a country and western song with us. <laughs> it's just like Ashley in the woods looking for the chicken that flew the coop. Totally. I mean, I was. this thing's like 20 pounds and like dumb as bricks. I could not get it back into the coop to save my life. So Thanksgiving's coming up. Thanksgiving's, Thanksgiving's coming up. It made me think, wow, how much my life has changed in the past six months. Like this time last September, we would have been at the office, going out and meeting writers for drinks after work, going to dinner, having a proper social life, maybe even going to the theater. Michael, speaking of the theater. Yes. We have a fabulous view from here in Airmail this week. Guess what, guys? The theater is back in London, at least. Yeah, uh, John Lahr, a contributor, went and sort of braved coronavirus in London's West End to see David Hare's new play about coronavirus starring Ray Fiennes. You know, look, it's a very short play, but I think the important thing is it's back on, it, West End is, is back and trying to do some theater and get things up and going. So it's a great small note of optimism, which I keep looking for everywhere these days. So nice piece by John this week. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's sort of more evidence to the point that in Europe, it seems like many European countries have entered a new phase in which they're sort of living with coronavirus, whereas in the United States, we're still in the throes of the pandemic. John is an ocean away, but he feels like he's a world away because it's so difficult to imagine, let's say, Broadway reopening in any way, shape or form here in New York. Yeah, what's interesting, you know, I mean, in terms of theaters and things here in New York, I mean, in America, like they pushed to get movie theaters open. You know, we had Tenant go into the theaters this last couple weekends. It did okay, giving Hollywood a bit of, bit of a pause. But, you know, in perspective, New York and L.A. theaters aren't fully open yet. So which is where, you know, Christopher Nolan's fan base is primarily, I would think, based. But if we can get probably a little more movie theaters open, that'll be good. I think, obviously, Broadway, from what everyone knows, is a ways away in, until there's probably at least a, a vaccine available here. Yeah. Uh, live music in general is something that I'm missing acutely these days. But, you know, at least we've got a great playlist in airmail each week. And thanks, Spotify, I guess. I know there's something on your mind. It starts with a P and ends with an S. <laughs> well, that's always on my mind. <laughs> Whoa. Just kidding. Oh. Us kidding. Okay, great. That's a little vulgar for the day. Let's talk about male genitalia, shall we? That's not cheery for all guys, you know. But sure, why would you want to talk about male genitalia on a nice sort of family podcast like this? Children, avert your ears because we're going to get graphic. So we have a great piece in the issue by Michael O'Dell, and it's called Hilariously, Members Only. Look it up. And in it, a Belgian urologist named Professor Pete Hobicky talks about everything we need to know about the penis. It's quite illuminating. Now, I do not have one, but I guess I should just stop there. Michael, what did you think of this story? I'm going to talk to the men in the room for a second or whoever else is there. Here's one of the top lines from his study. And guys, if you think it's getting smaller, it just might be. Okay. And this is scientifically proven now. Penises are getting smaller, is according to the report. In the 1940s, Alfred Kinsey posted his groundbreaking sexual behavior in the human male. And in that 60, 70 years ago, 80 years ago, he concluded that the average penis length was just over 5.5 inches. But now, on average, in industrialized countries, 
more than it's more than one third of an inch shorter. And while yes, this may be due to measuring techniques, go ahead, guys, tell yourself that. But they think in truth it's actually because of environmental pollution caused by discarded plastics and other factors, toxic factors entering the human gene cycle now. So it is possibly getting smaller. So that is one interesting bit of news from it. More cheery news from Michael Haney, people. Well, I, I can't just be Mr. Uh, oh, well, I don't know what you want me to say, but I just, <laughs> I'm letting the guys know you're not the only one. Okay. But I've got good news. Okay. Tell so us. what we also conclude here is, look, back in the day, yes, one's manhood was definitely when we didn't wear clothes, how mates were selected, right? You sort of look to see who was could be the most fit breeding one to breed with if you're a female. But now that we wear clothes, things are a little different. And as he sort of concludes in his study that the eye gaze used to always go down to the crotch. Now, eye gaze analysis shows that women look at shoulders, arms, general muscles, and even the butt before they consider the trouser bulge. So if you're still putting that seedless cucumber or that extra sock in your pants before you go into the club Saturday night, you can unholster it and have a little more confidence in maybe your general appearance as well. So that's my good news. Okay. Wonderful. You know, one thing that I found, Michael, that was, there were so many illuminating things in this story for me as a woman. One of them is there's such a thing as a healthy penis diet. Apparently penises need arginine, which is an amino acid that strengthens the immune system and the libido. And red food is a rich source of that. So make sure you eat your beets and peppers and tomatoes and cranberries. Also a vegetarian diet is apparently also best for your penis. So consider that a tip, gentlemen, and go about your business accordingly. And I'm just going to, make the joke because it can be made, but according to the diet, nuts are also good for. <laughs> it's in the report. Nuts are good for your nuts is I guess what I'm saying. <laughs> Okay, cool. Maybe diet, not so good. That's all I'm saying. Now that we've tackled the most important stories of the week, let's get on to da 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 scandal of the week. The scandal of the week. Now, this one comes out of London, yes? Don't all good scandals come out of London? Well, for now. I think we've got a few good ones coming out of D.C. every now and then. But yeah, this is for one courtesy of our writer-at-large, Stu Heritage. Tell us about it, Ashley. Many of our friends and collaborators in London have been buzzing this week because there is an incredibly indiscreet book called Diary of an MP's wife that recently came out. And it's written by Sasha Swire, who's the wife of Tory MP Hugo Swire. And it's perhaps one of the best windows into Tory politics that the public has ever had access to at this kind of a scale. So the Swires might not be the most famous politicians in the UK, but they're incredibly well connected. They were very close friends with Prime Minister David Cameron and Chancellor George Osborne. And those two characters are really all over this book. And it's not the most flattering portrayal of any of them. At one point, Cameron threatens to push the author into a bush so that he, quote, can give you one. Yikes. At another point, he stays up late to, quote, admire Kira Knightley's nipples during a screening of Atonement. There you go. And Osborne is referred to as, quote, Boy George, allegedly, who's very resentful at being perceived as an underling to David Cameron. So, but lest you think that that's where the fun ends, it continues. Sasha Swire has all the juice on everyone's nickname. Okay, so according to her, Theresa May is known as, quote, Old Mom May. Camilla Parker Bowles is chastised for always having the end of a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. Prince Andrew is described as, quote, excruciating. It goes on from there. So everyone is talking about this and we're talking about it too. Can I interrupt for a second? Yeah. Kira Knightley's nipples. <laughs> 
nibbles or nipples? Nipples, nipples. Oh, I thought you said nibbles, and I thought it was like some Britishism that I didn't know. Like, well, she's got right nibbles. I didn't hear anything you said after that. I just kept trying to figure out what nibbles were. But I know. <laughs> well, we already dealt with penises. Now we've moved on to nipples. Like, we've got it all for you this week, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, we're just right down there. So I think the question, Michael, everyone's asking is like, why would Sasha Swire do this? Why does she want to jeopardize her close friendships for something as relatively small potatoes as a tell-all book? In certain circles of London, Sasha Swire's book is being compared to the diaries of Alan Clark. He was another sort of low-level government functionary who wrote a book about the downfall of Margaret Thatcher. Those were eventually adapted for television. And Stu posits that the same thing could be happening here. So he says, quote, Sasha Swire might have lost all her friends, but she might have created one hell of a sitcom, The World Can Dream. Hmm, trading up. Trading up. So continue to follow this story because we've got another piece on it, Michael, coming in next week. So we're going to be talking more about Sasha Swire and all of the drama of Tory politics. So, so tune in next week. We'll have a great guest for you. Kira Knightley. <laughs> a boy can dream. Sorry. Just wonderful. I like the film. It was a good movie. It was not as good as the book, but it was, it was good. I don't remember that scene, but you know, I'm sure someone's got it. Hey, speaking of family jewels. Oh God, what is it? We missed a natural segue here, speaking of family jewels and our story about men's jewels, about the, the news that came out of Paris this week, which confirmed what we knew all along. If you remember Fashion Week about four years ago, 2016, when Kim Kardashian, when those guys broke in and stole all those jewels from her, guess what? They cased her on social media, right? And the guy who was sort of one of the guys who they caught, whose nickname is Omar the Elder, which I love, he said that she made herself an easy target by divulging her whereabouts in jewelry online. They eventually sold, stole $4.5 million engagement ring that Kanye had given her. He said they sold that $4.5 million engagement ring for $400,000. And then they melted down the rest of the jewelry after realizing the extent of her and probably they realized they, they, they couldn't fence it. But shocker that someone looked on social media and that's how they, they knew how to, how to case her and all our stuff. Pretty great, right? Not surprising. We could file that under things we might have predicted, but it is always a good reminder for all of us not to show off anyone's extreme wealth on social media. It reminded me though, if you remember the old Robin Leach show, Speaking of British People, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Who could forget? Which I think it was Jay Leno had the great line. You're like, why would you put your house on that show? Which is like thieves watching at home. Like, oh, so that he keeps the safe in the bathroom of the master suite. Like, it just was like a guided tour of like how to rob someone's home, which is now what social media has become. It's just it's like shows what you've got. And even when you're not home, which is another part of it, I know from, from people that it's they, so be careful too, because if people know you're not home and they know what's left in your home, there you go. So, but I love this. I love Omar the Elder, just a name made for TV. So there you go. Great story out of Paris this week. Totally. You know, Michael, people always ask me, because we've worked in magazines, they say, why would a celebrity put their home on the cover of Architectural Digest or El Decor? Well, most of the time in those cases, celebrities will put their homes on the market right before they sell them. It's essentially like a marketing tool, right? For the property. And I think that we've, as a result, our culture has become sort of accustomed to this show-off nature. Like, remember MTV Cribs? Yo, yo, yo. <laughs> it was a similar kind of experience. And so as a result, like that used to just be the realm of celebrities, but now everyday people are doing it online and it does actually pose a real security risk. Like, do you really want people knowing where you're going all the time, what you're wearing, what kind of possessions you have? Anyway, it's a, it's a good wake up call. Yeah, I do know from that it is in fact a, a real problem in LA. I mean, um, it's sort of like where, especially like on awards nights and other things, but people will, will track and see what celebrities are home and what not home, who are not home. And you often use that as a, 
chance to burglarize their their homes, which I know police have told them, like, don't ever post, like, here I am and post your vacation photos when you're back home, not when you're there, because it's basically saying, like, my home is unguarded right now. So a little tip for you from McGruff, the crime dog, a.k.a. Michael. Okay. I'm going to start calling you McGruff. It's a good idea. I don't know. Whatever you No. Just don't call me depressing. (laughs) Okay, fine. I won't call you depressing. All right, Mr. Haney, what do we have next? Speaking of social media, my last fun story this week, we have a really great story by David Kaufman, one of our writers. And it takes place among, this is kind of like, if you're a fan of the show Ozark, it's like, which is all based on money laundering and cartels. This is basically like Ozark in Kuwait meets social influencers. So it kind of comes full circle with a lot of our themes here today. And it's a story about how social media influencers in Kuwait have been laundering money. And this past summer, a number of them with millions of Instagram followers had their passport seized and their assets frozen by Kuwaitis officials accused of laundering up to $100 million in cash. And it's just this all part of this sort of thing that goes on right now. I mean, I mean, as I said a minute ago, like from Tony Montana to Pablo Escobar to even like Paul Manafort, as David writes, conspicuous consumption, is it always seems to accompany fraud and embezzlement. But these days, you know, with social media elevating everyone wanting to be seen as kind of rich and, and glam, it's sort of like now front and center. It used to be the feds had to like figure out if you've got it or the international authorities. But so it's a little easier to, to track these guys, but it's harder to sort of find them because it's often hidden in Bitcoin and other stuff. And it's not like they're walking around with bundles of cash strapped onto their body like in the 1970s. It's a pretty great story about how social media influencers are, are sort of laundering vast piles of money at the same time sort of projecting these like, here's me on my great yacht. So it's a good kind of movie waiting to be made. I'm already casting it in my mind. I came away from the story thinking I did not give these social media influencers nearly enough credit. I mean, this is a pretty serious operation to run and it's couched in this notion of photographing yourself in all kinds of ridiculous situations and putting it on Line. It's kind of evilly brilliant in a way. Yeah, it's evilly brilliant. And as I said, I feel like it's like Sasha Baron Cohen and Jonah Hill in the movie here. But yeah, it's evilly brilliant. But it's like so many things these days. It's like it's right on the surface, like, oh, this looks normal. And then you look below. And of course, like there's a criminal enterprise right below it. So it's a great fun story. And also, I'm sure it's not the last time we're going to learn that whether it's in Kuwait or somewhere else, that, that this kind of uh, money laundering and, and shades in the grades kind of stuff, it goes down. Well, speaking of the criminal underbelly of society, we have a pretty fantastic story in the issue this week about dun, the brain behind Goodfellas. Yeah, we've got a fantastic story this week. It's time flies, but this fall is the 30th anniversary of the release of Goodfellas, the Martin Scorsese directed and co-written movie. We co-wrote it with Nick Pileggi based on Nick's book, Wise Guys. And this week we have a fantastic interview by Douglas McGrath, a movie writer and director of his own right and reputation. It's called I Know Those Guys. And it's about uh, Nick telling about how he came to write the book, of Henry Hill and how he got hooked up with Martin Scorsese, what his own real life experience was growing up in Bensonhurst and how that informed his, his writing of the screenplay. So we've got Doug here today and we're going to talk to him. Uh, to the person who really got the book published. I was working on it. I had been working on it for many years. And my last year of working on it, I met Nora Ephraim, who I married. And we were keeping company, as we used to say. And uh, she read the book and edited it brilliantly because she was a great editor. Worked at Esquire. She's really good. And uh, the clean. And when I gave it to Michael Corder eventually, he said it was the cleanest, 
best edited book he had ever gotten. They had nothing to do. She just <laughs> edited it for free. Meanwhile, I'm working on it, and she comes home one night, and she said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm just finishing it. You're, that, that's, that's your book. I said, yeah. She said, what are you, you shouldn't be here. You're going to play around with this book for the next year, and you're going to ruin it. You're going to throw it away. Give me it. So she took it. I <laughs> right out of the typewriter. She put it in an envelope, sent it to Michael Corder. I would have never done that. I would have you would have fucked it up over the next year. I would have. I guarantee. I would have changed the opening. I would have figured out some. I mean, I would have. That's who I am. She oh, wouldn't let that happen. Fact. So she got it an inch. So I've always looked. That's she's the one who did it. That was Nick Pileggi talking about Nora Ephron, his late wife, and how she edited his book Wise Guys, which became the movie Goodfellas. And here to talk with us today about his great piece in this week's issue, I Knew Those Guys, conversation with Nick Pileggi about the making and writing of Goodfellas is Douglas McGrath. Doug, welcome. Doug, welcome to the show. We're excited to have you. It must have been a fantastic experience to sit down with Nick. You know, I have an office on 54th Street that overlooks 54th between 5th and 6th. I look out the window all the time and I see people, workers who have to dig up the street and cab drivers who, who have to make their way through the traffic. You know, people who are working hard to make a living. And then I think that my so-called work was to chat with Nick Pileggi about his life and this extraordinary book, which it just doesn't seem, the word work doesn't seem applicable. <laughs> it was utter joy. I had met Nick a few times through the years, but never for very long and didn't know him well. And he's just fantastic. He's ebullient. He's energetic. He's very funny and has a deep kind of urban, by which I mean both city life and knowledge of urban things, which I mean city life and the underside of city life, principally gangsters. So he's just fantastic to talk to. The gangsters, I think it talks, as he tells you in the story this week, in this week's fair mail. One of the reasons Henry sort of came to trust him is Nick's own childhood growing up in Bensonhurst, which I think he spins beautifully to you about his knowing these early mobsters like uh, Albert Anastasia, who's he's got that great detail when his father's working in the garment district and goons might bother his father. And, and what does his father do? He calls him, tells him to call a number, right? Yeah. And when that guy calls that number, he's made aware that um, Nick's father was very friendly with Albert Anastasia and that that person should get lost. <laughs> and boy, did they get lost when they heard. You've checked out in so many wonderful details through Nick, and I think that it shows that Nick's sort of coming up as a newspaper reporter in the 50s covering organized crime, and again, these crazy details, like his cousin is gay to right, and they're roommates yes. after high school. But tell us the story that Nick tells you about how he first comes to write the book and meets Henry, and the kind of the, the magic question that, that Henry answers that convinces Nick that I can work with this guy, this is going to be a great story. Well, so Henry Hill, when he was arrested and saw how grim his options were, decided to inform on the mob, on as many people as he possibly could, to get the best deal for himself that he possibly could. And to pay for the lawyer that he needed, he decided to write a book or to have someone write a book about him. And he would profit from that money in some way. So it was very important to him to get the book done. And Michael Corda and Dick Snyder at Simon & Schuster wanted the book. And so they set up meetings for Henry to meet different writers. And one of the writers he met was Nick Pileggi. And the great moment for them was, it's not very hard to get along with Nick, so right away that's easy. But when he's talking to him, he realizes they're from kind of the same 
world. And at one point, Henry Hill says something about a gangster named Johnny Wagon Wheels. And Nick says, oh, you mean Joey Fatico. And as soon as Henry Hill heard that and knew that Nick knew that Johnny Wagon Wheels' real name was Joey Fatico or whatever it was, he thought, oh my God, you're my guy. You're the guy for this because I don't have to explain everything to you. You'll get it. That's why Nick feels he got the job. He saw the change in Henry Hill's expression at that moment. Partially it's because, according to Nick, Henry's very lazy. The least amount of work he can do is what he's interested in. And he's easily bored. And to explain things over and over would have been boring to him. Okay, and let's have one more listen to Nick talking about uh, one of my favorite anecdotes about Johnny Wagon Wheels, who is basically the reason Henry Hill decided to work with him. We started talking and he asked about, uh, uh, he mentioned a guy by the name of Johnny Wagon Wheels. <laughs> I said, you mean Fatico? Johnny Fatico. Yeah, you know Johnny Fatico? He says, yeah. He says, you know, I, I, and that told him, he later explained to me, he said, when I realized who Johnny Wagon Wheels was, it meant he would not have to explain it yeah. to some writer who didn't know the lingo and didn't know the people. Yes. And it would just take, it would bore him to death. He was not good at boredom. No, yeah, that comes through. Yeah, that, it comes. And and the minute he realized, I knew all the players, and then I where I grew up and who I knew, and I would mention to people, oh, you know him, you are the Lord, you, you, I, I tell you a story about him. And he, it was almost as though he was reliving his street life with another guy who knew the street life and the, the people and the characters and the laughs and the, the, the fun. And what I was like, so that's why Henry wants to work with, with Nick. He's like, okay, this guy, as we say, like Nick knows those guys, right? He's got the shorthand. But what I love is like, as writers, we all appreciate this. Why does Nick want to work with? Yes. And because he asked him about what he did with the money he won, right? Yes, exactly right. One of the things Nick loved about Henry Hill when he met him was that Henry had such a vivid and specific memory. And they were talking about some time in Henry's life when Henry had won $600 gambling. And that was a lot of money at the time. And Nick asked him, do you remember what you did with that money? And Henry said, oh yeah, I bought a yellow Bonneville convertible. He knew the color. He knew everything about it. And that's what made Nick think, this is going to be great. This guy is gold because he has a memory for the color, for the brand, for the make, for everything. And this was something that had happened 30 years before. He said, a lot of the gangsters you would have asked that question of wouldn't have remembered. They'd be like, how the hell do I know? I could have wasted it on a broad. I could have bought a, a boat. I don't know. That was a long time ago. But part of that comes from the mob mentality of not saying too much, of not giving anything up. Even if it's to a writer writing your life, they are so trained not to tell the story just out of self-protection. It was a kind of code. But the interesting thing about Henry was he didn't have that code. Yeah, it's a thing that actually makes the whole thing possible because he refuses to dummy up. And not only that, but he was himself, Henry Hill, a natural storyteller. So that if you have the pleasure of reading Wise Guys, and it, it is indeed, it's a real pleasure. He keeps the bulk of it in Henry Hill's voice. You know, he recorded his interviews with Henry over three years, and he largely, not entirely, but largely relies on the transcripts of those interviews to tell the story. So you really feel like Henry Hill is telling you the story in the book. And you can see why Nick was so drawn to him, because he doesn't miss the tiniest detail or the funniest detail or the most brutal. He gets it all. Yeah, he sends it into gold, too. I think it's, it's a tremendous pairing. He's, funny, like, he's got a great pairing with Henry Organ Wise Guys, and then he has this great pairing, of course, with Corsese in the writing of the script. One of the nice little sort of like sub-themes that run through your conversation with Nick is he kind of 
can't believe what he should be doing sometimes. In other words, there's the moment when the book comes out and Irvin Winkler, who's a movie producer of Mean Streets and Raging Bull, works with Scorsese, reads the book, thinks this is a book for Scorsese. Scorsese reads it and Scorsese's filming Color of Money and he keeps calling Nick in New York and Nick thinks David Denby, the film critic of New York Magazine, is, is pranking him. So he doesn't return the Right. That's right. He and David Denby were friends and they used to go to all of Marty's movies together. They were, they were big fans of Marty's. So he just thinks, oh, well, it's not Marty. It's David Denby just pranking me. So he ignores it. He ignores it two days in a row because Marty calls the next day kind of wondering why his call isn't being returned. And Nick sees it and he thinks, boy, this Denby thinks I'm such a sucker, but I'm not going to get pulled in by him. And then Nora comes home and says, Nick, what's the matter with you? And he said, well, what do you mean? It's a frequent question between husband and wife. But in this case, he didn't know what it meant. And she said, why aren't you calling Marty Scorsese back? And he said, that's not Marty Scorsese. That's David Denby. And he starts to try and explain it. She says, Nick, it's Marty Scorsese. She had a script supervisor who had worked on one of her films who was now working with Marty. And Marty said to the script supervisor, can you ask Nora why Nick isn't calling me back? When Nick realized it really was Marty Scorsese who was calling him, he called him right back. And as soon as Color Money was done, they jumped in. And what I love is when Nick talks about the writing of that with Marty and this just, you've got that scene where he, the secretary tells him what she heard when they were in the office the whole time, right? That's right. She, the secretary was outside the door and the door was closed. And she said, all I heard coming out of that office was laughter. They just laughed and laughed and laughed, which is hilarious too, because it's not the funniest movie that was ever made. There is humor in it. To me, what it shows is the joy of their collaboration. Yeah. Pulling back for a second, are there scenes in the movie for yourself as a filmmaker or just a fan that still resonate with you? I mean, everyone's got their sort of, there's moments in it, but just wondering if there's a favorite moment for you. I watched the movie again. I, I don't think I'd seen it for five years. Maybe I see it every so often because it's so good. But, you know, it sometimes is a painful thing to revisit something that you had loved and with either maturity or the changing world or whatever, it doesn't hold up. And the joy of seeing it again was how completely fresh it is, how it feels hot off the presses. You know what I mean? To use an old-fashioned newspaper term. It just is as fresh as it was when it came out. And the filmmaking is so brilliant. There are many scenes that stand out. And yet, really, what I was struck by this time was not, because I think probably when I first saw it, the scene that stood out the most, possibly, was that hair-raising but hilarious scene with Joe Pesci and Ray Liotta talking about, you think I'm funny? You think I'm funny? And it goes from being a funny scene to being a scary scene to ultimately being a very funny scene. And yet, this time, that scene held up, and it was, of course, just what, as I remembered, but really, this time, what just thrilled me was how the movie starts. It's like a, a beautiful domino trick. It starts, and it never stops. It just flows beautifully until the end. It's not all in one shot. Obviously, it's in a million shots, but it feels like one continuous piece of work. I couldn't break it down the same way this time. I just so admired it as I'm telling. He has variety. It's not frantic. There's a lot of energy in it, but it has highs of energy and lows of energy, and he just modulates it beautifully throughout. Although I have to add, one of the scenes that really struck me this time, which I guess I'd forgot, but it's when Karen, Henry's wife, after he's been arrested, goes to visit Jimmy, Robert De Niro's character, and he says, come with me. I want you to get some, there's some furs and some clothes you can get. The scene in the alley. Yes, that's right. Which is like an existential dread. Yes, and he sends her down, and he doesn't come with her. And he sends her down, and she's so good, and it's shot so wonderfully, and your heart stops because you're like, oh, I don't care what the dress is. It's not worth it. Get in the car. That scene really stood out to me this time because I'd forgotten it, and it was it's one of the scenes without Ray Liotta. You know, it's so Ray Liotta-based and so guy-based, but that was her alone in such peril. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, the actresses in the film are extraordinary. Between... 
Debbie Mazar and, and Lorraine Bracco. She did it for like two minutes, right? But every single scene is totally unforgettable. Her hair and makeup, what she's wearing, that red mesh dress. And Debbie is fantastic. You think of Scorsese, I think a lot of people do it as kind of a man's director because the subjects are often so male-oriented, being gangster-related. But he has gotten so many wonderful, wonderful performances from women over the years. I mean, you can go back to Ellen Burstyn's just brilliant performance in Alice, Doesn't Live Here. And the women in this, I couldn't agree with you more. Lorraine is great. All those women, the housewives, so to speak, at those parties are fantastic. You mentioned a minute ago, I want to get, but, you know, that classic well-known scene of Pesci, you know, do I make you laugh? Do I amuse you? Play a clown, which Nick relates. Obviously, the script is fantastic, but still there was room on the set for improvisation, right? Oh, yes. Nick, I have to say, was so, he gave a lot of credit to Nora for getting the book edited well and then in the envelope and to the publisher. He feels deeply indebted to her for that, but he feels as indebted to Marty for the extraordinary way that he took the script they wrote, not only the script that they did together, but the way he took it and brought it to life. And of course, one of the things about Marty's films that's always so great is that there is this feeling of reality to it, this realism. And one of the ways he gets at that is by allowing improv when it works and when it's helpful. And so Joe Pesci had come up to Marty and said, I have a story I want to tell you. And he tells him a story that is like what happens in that scene about a guy who pulling someone's leg, but he's saying, you think I'm funny? You're making fun of me? All that kind of thing. And he tells that story to Marty and he says, wouldn't that be good in this scene? Because the scene Nick felt the scene was otherwise going to be kind of an ordinary mob scene. Some guys at a bar, somebody gets slugged or, you know, just a usual scene. And Marty said, oh, that's great. He said, put it in, but we're not going to tell anybody you're going to put it in. Just once we start rolling, whenever you feel you can get to it, get to it. And the other guys will have to keep up. And that's what they did. So the first take of it, Nick said, is really great because you see Ray Liotta and, and these other guys looking at Joe, who's not saying after the first page or so, he's not saying any of the words that were in the script. And so they have to react as real people would react, the way you're hearing the story for the first time. He said that some of their reactions, they obviously filmed it many more times after that, but he said a lot of the reactions of them hearing this are from that very first take, because those are the most realistic. I went back and looked at it, and like, it's got like Ray's reaction has to be the genuine first take. It's just like stunned at how he's busting them. But yeah. I mean, I'd love to know how Nick is doing and what's he like now and sort of what's on his mind these days, Doug. Like, what was the process of interviewing him like? I didn't ask him this, but in looking into it, I think Nick is 87 and he has so much energy. I think before I used what I would characterize as the right word for him, he's ebullient. He's just bouncing around. He loves talking about it all. He was, as I said, really generous in sharing credit for it. I think he's probably, it's fun to think back on now because the movie didn't turn into Bonfire of the Vanities, but turned into Goodfellas. And though they got cheated, is a funny word, but it lost out at the Oscars, even though there's is clearly, I think, the best of the films of that year. I think history's proven that to be right, though he has that satisfaction. He seems like a very engaged and energetic guy. Great. No, Doug, is there anything that we haven't gotten to that you think is important? I do love this detail. I don't know if you can use it or if it's too much, but I just think one of the funny things is Nick's own eye for detail. He remembered that there was a church in his neighborhood because he thought this kind of summed up his church. I mean, his neighborhood I love that. of Bensonhurst. And he said it's a Catholic church, of course, and it has a beautiful kind of faux Michelangelo ceiling with the usual kind of pink clouds at the sunset and the little cherubs and the seraphim and the various harps and things floating around. And yet, 
in one corner, there's a man in, in a black overcoat and a fedora. And next to him is a woman in a dress and then a modern dress and then two little kids in mini overcoats and fedoras. And he said that guy was some guy from the neighborhood who used to be in the uh, liquor business, the illegal liquor business, you know, in the old days. And then he got into the legal liquor business as well as the olive oil distribution business and became quite rich. And so he paid for the ceiling, paid to have it all painted. But his one thing was he needed to be up there with his family. You know, it's the Medici way, right? You need to have a belt sort of like... <laughs> That's right. But it just shows you both you how there's the crime is there. It shows you how the vanity is there. And it shows you how the humor is there, which all those things end up indirectly, but in Nick's wonderful book and in the wonderful movie. And in your wonderful piece in Airmail this week, I know those guys. It's a beautiful piece. It's inspiring. And I think it's also just a great testament to creativity. Thanks so much for being here with Ashley and me today. Thank you both for having me. It was a great pleasure to talk about all this. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Bye. Thanks. You too. One last thing before we go. Sure. We've got a great quiz this week in the issue by Ted Heller, a friend of ours. And it's it's asking readers to spot the real Megan Markleisms from the fake. I don't know if you've read a lot of Megan's quotes, but they sometimes can feel like they are sort of like, are they real or are they taken from like some Snapchat? Are they taken from some Instagram little quote box? So I'm going to read you two quotes and you're going to tell me. So I'm going to read you a quote right now and you tell me if this is one she said or one that Ted has made up. Okay. Okay. Sometimes I accomplish the most by just doing nothing. True. Okay. That's made up. All right, I'll give you one more chance. Did Meghan Markle say this or did we make it up? I don't sit around thinking about my titles and roles. I just do what feels right. She said it. You are correct. Woo! I don't have any gift for you, but if it were like the $10,000 pyramid, like maybe your chair would spin around or something. But Okay. You know what I'd like? I'd like the archives of the TIG. If anyone can get those to us, please send them our way. There you go. Right? That should be my reward for getting that one question correct. And Michael, we have a great lives this week to discuss as well. We lost wonderful talent in the world of art and design. Yeah. This is it's funny. It's, it's We're talking about Sir Terrence Conrad, who, as we sort of say in the issue, really turned Bauhaus into your house. And this was a guy who had a profound effect on, you know, you're talking a minute ago about celebrities and homes and lifestyle. But if I had to distill that, this is a guy who made the world a more beautiful place. He brought better design into everyone's home and made it accessible to many more people than it was when he came on the scene in London in the 60s when he started his Habitat shops. So, you know, it almost sounds like Tom Wolf comical, but as we say in the obituary, he gave people access to duvets, walks, beanbags, chicken bricks, all these things which I think seem kind of bougie and commonplace now, but really kind of, I think, for that second post-war generation coming of age in the 60s and 70s, what you might call yuppies even. He provided these great stores that sort of eventually came to the U.S. and sort of really transformed how we live and made our world, like I say, a little more beautiful, a little more lovely. And I think as long as you're putting some beauty and elegance into the world, that's a great thing. It's for a lot of people, it's been around 60 years now and it's still a point of reference for how we live in our homes. And so it's it's a beautiful story about his life and his impact on things like so many homes you go into, you could say they are influenced by Sir Terrence. So I always love going to his shop by Regent's Park in London. It has such an incredible energy to it. And I always find something cute to take 
home. And I think a lot of people sort of know him for that. He manages to, whether it's in a pencil or a piece of furniture or a lighting, like everything is chosen with precision in his universe. It's quite a legacy, really. It shows in that as well. So his place in kind of like the culture in, in the UK, where this week when, when he died, David Lindley, who was the son of, of the late Princess Margaret, said, an era has come to an end and it really was an era, a great era of pioneering, adventurous design, and living that whole era was very exciting and fresh. He will be sorely missed. So I think he's one of those people that had such a deep impact on so many lives. It's almost like the way Henry Ford transformed how you live. But this is someone who made your interior world more beautiful and, and more enjoyable. And as I say, like, if you're doing that for the world, that's a great thing. So tremendous legacy. Well, Michael, before we leave, is there anything you must recommend? Oh, I didn't think about that yet. How about you? Michael, I'm the style editor. Okay. So am I shallow? Sometimes. And finally, six months into quarantine, I've decided to try a new workout. I might be the last person on the planet to get creative with wellness. Is it Zumba? Jazzercise? What is it? Neither. None of that. So there's a new workout that is sweeping Instagram and it's called Torched by Isaac. And it's a totally different methodology created by a fitness instructor named Isaac Calpito. And it's 40 minute flow of dance conditioning and resistance and leg lifts and abs. And it's incredibly hard and super fun. And the guy has quite the personality. And I swear half of the workout class is like a close-up shot of his crotch while you do your armbands and your leg lifts and stuff. But, you know, I just had to bring the conversation back full circle to penises. We started there. We might as well end there. Or it's like some social media money laundering scam. There you go. Just saying, maybe. So you're watching a quote-unquote fitness video that focuses on a guy's crotch? Well, yeah, because he does the whole thing on it. It's a yes or no question. Yes. That's all I want to know. Interpret as you wish, but let me tell you, I am there for the full 40 minutes, dancing along, doing my leg lifts. It's really fun. The guy has now like several hundred thousand Instagram followers. He's made a real career for this. He's really made a name for himself during COVID, and it's a super really fun workout. I do recommend it. If anyone's looking to switch up the routine and undo the effects of a summer full of alcohol and carbs. Not like I'm speaking from experience. This could be a fun place to do it. All right. Torch by Isaac. Yeah, I don't know if it's for me, but... It might not be for you, but if you do try it, let me know how it goes. All right. Maybe we'll do a live version. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We will have another edition of Morning Meeting here for you on Wednesday. That's right. We're twice a week. You can't get enough of us. We'll be back talking about all of the pressing issues of the day. Thank you all again for joining us for Morning Meeting. Michael, will you please read us out? I would love to read us out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airmail Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. Special thanks, of course, to Joe Przinski. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which is updated every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here on Wednesday with another edition of Morning Meeting, and thank you again for joining us. One last thing I just want to say, be sure and fill out your census form if you're here in the U.S. You've got two more weeks to do it. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye, guys.